Let's go to Psalm 11. Take your Bible, go to Psalm 11. And I am, as I just said, so thankful that God's word speaks to you and me today, living in the times in which we live. What do you do when the foundations of a civilization are shaken? What do you do? Let's pray, and then we'll answer that question from the Word of God. We have sung already, O Lord, that you are the holy God, that we have called one another to come and worship this holy God. You are holy, holy, holy. You sit on heaven's throne, ruling and reigning over all. There is not a maverick molecule. There is not a person on the planet that can live his life in secret. You govern all things. You have ordained all things that ever come to pass. And so, Lord, as we look into your word in Psalm 11, we desperately need this psalm. It's short, but, Lord, we need it. And so it has been my earnest prayer, and yet again, Lord, we pray that you would take your truth, and Lord, that you would establish, establish us deeply in your word. We don't want to be flimsy, shaken to and fro by every wind of doctrine and every new political thing that happens and a world event that shakes us up. We don't want to be shaken by that. We want to be standing upon the rock, the anchor for our souls, Jesus Christ. So teach us from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Psalm 11, from the title, it is a psalm of David, a psalm of David. Verse 1, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. And then the conclusion you probably see in the title of Psalm eight, uh, Psalm 12, it is for the choir director upon an eight-stringed lyre. David Wells has written much on current events and the culture in which we live. He accurately said this, the quote is in the top of your outline there, our world is being shaken to its very foundations. Instead of offering great thoughts about God or the meaning of reality and the gospel, 
there are evangelical churches that are offering only a little therapeutic nostrums that are sweet, but mostly worthless. And then he continues, It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. What does he mean? I mean that God has become relatively unimportant. If the foundations are destroyed, verse 3, what in the world are the righteous to do? And I would suggest to you tonight that you and I are living in such times. (coughs) Truth is mocked. Marriage is attempted to be redefined. Family, many might say, with a husband and a wife, that's traditional and old school and passe. Morality is relative. Public education is toxic. And brainwashing our children. Demonic ideologies are pervading social media. Churches, by and large, not all, but churches by and large are lukewarm theaters to get a laugh and to draw a crowd. To the eyes and hearts and minds of many, Christ is cool, trendy, inclusive, and never critical. The Spirit of God is unknown and often insulted. The Bible is unimportant and the Bible is irrelevant. And many would say in our culture that God is an easygoing, always forgiving, and never angry with anyone deity. If you choose to believe in him, that is. The foundations of our society are crumbling. They're crumbling. And David probably wrote this psalm at a time when he, as the anointed king, was being hunted by Saul. There's an interesting verse, it's a parallel in 1 Samuel chapter 26, verse 20, when we read that one is hunting a bird in the mountains. David felt like that. Saul was hunting him like a bird in the mountains. The wicked are persecuting the upright. And you can almost feel David just pouring out his heart, thinking and feeling that the foundations of our Israelite civilization are crumbling. One commentator, in the title of this psalm, he said this. He titled it, The Foundations of Society Are Shaking. What should the man of God do? Another commentator said, as he titled Psalm 11, the foundations of the world order are crumbling. The wisdom of this psalm is what we need. Yet another commentator said, what do you do when everything is falling apart in your world? Or, I tried to title this in a similar way, what do you do when the foundations of a civilization are destroyed? As we walk through this psalm, what I want to do is just give you four simple axioms. There's nothing profound to this, but what I hope to do is give you some simple, memorable axioms when the foundations of civilization are shaken. That is, when the very order of a society that is social and civil order crumbles and decays, 
what do we do? What do we learn from David? How do we pray? How do we reflect? Let's begin with number one in your outline. David teaches us to say, I run to God. I run to God. And that's a good question for us because when the foundations of the world are shaken, do we run in fear or do we stand firm in confidence? Is it faith or is it flight? What do we do? And I suppose it is easy, isn't it? When we're in trouble and when we don't know where to go and where to turn, Our thought might be to get away, to flee, to isolate, to be alone. And yet the psalm teaches, don't run, don't hide, don't isolate, take refuge in God. And notice how verse 1 begins. It is a psalm that David writes and he says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? But he begins, in the Lord. I take refuge. What I want to propose to you and teach you and simply remind you is that you need a strong refuge. And let me just remind you simply, you'll never find a mighty refuge in the things of this world. And nor will you ever find a mighty refuge by looking deep within yourself. What we need is a refuge that includes four realities in your outline. Number one, you need a strong refuge. You need a strong refuge. Like like when Psalm 93 verse 4 tells us, the Lord on high is mighty. The psalm has mentioned this all over the place. You need a refuge that is strong. You also need a refuge that is available. You need a refuge that is available. Draw near to God, James 4, and he will draw near to you. What an available God, an available refuge. Third, you and I need a refuge that is protective. Protective. Oh, the beauty of Psalm 121, the Lord will protect you from all evil, we read in that psalm. And we need a refuge that is unfailing. Just like God told the man Joshua, it will not fail you, nor will I forsake you. We we need a strong refuge, an available refuge, a protective refuge, an unfailing refuge. And when the very foundations of civil order in society is crumbling, we have refuge in God. We don't flee, we don't run, we don't hide, we don't isolate, we run to Christ. Can I remind you of some scriptures? I love Proverbs 14, verse 26. Don't forget this verse, it's so good. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence. Or a little later in Proverbs 14, 32, the righteous man has a refuge when he dies. We have a refuge when we die. Or the very familiar words of Psalm 46, verse 1, God is a very present help in trouble. Charles Wesley knew this. In his great hymn, Jesus, Lover of My Soul, Stanza two, other refuge have I none, 
I helpless hang on thee. Leave, oh, leave me not alone. Support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head in the shadow of thy wing. Christian, you know this, but I remind you from verse 1. When the very foundations of civilization are destroyed, I run to God. I run to God. I run to God. I run to God. We need to hear that each day because our culture is saying, run anywhere but God. I take refuge in the Lord. Number two in your outline, we also need to know this. When the foundations of civilization are destroyed, this is sobering. Number two, they shoot at me. Did you know that the typical American teenager today watches 18,000 murders by the time they graduate high school? Nearly 100,000. That's probably way minimal. It's probably much more commercials before they graduate high school. Some have even calculated that, that by the time a person reaches the age of 65, the average American watches 10 years in front of their TV. Nowadays, 85% of video games, it might be a little bit more, but 85% of video games out there have mild to extreme to graphic violence. And this is just being funneled and funneled and funneled into the hearts and minds of men and women. What happens when a civilization is being destroyed? Well, verse 1, evidently an advisor or a counselor or maybe a friend of David said in verse 1, flee, get out of here, go like a bird and flee to the mountains for refuge. Why? Verse 2, for behold, the wicked are bending the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. And if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Somebody is telling David, you got to run for your life. Go to the hills, go to the, be like a bird and go for safety in the wilderness somewhere. Why? Why? Because number one, they hate. The wicked hate the upright. You see that there in verse two, the wicked bend the bow. And not only that, verse 2, they are plotting. The wicked are plotting. They, they want to rid the earth of the godly. Isn't that interesting? They don't want to rid the earth of others. They want to rid the earth of the godly. Third, the wicked lurk. They lurk in the darkness. The end of verse 2. They want to shoot in the darkness at the unsuspected time. They want to shoot in the darkness at the upright in heart. They hate the upright in heart. They hate the godly. They hate the man of integrity. And they hate, they plot, they lurk, and they destroy. The foundations are destroyed. The very foundations are destroyed. Yesterday, I was at Hope Clinic. There was yelling coming from all sides. A couple others were out there. There were those who were not happy going into Hope Clinic at us. And there were those who were driving by who were not happy with us being in front. The foundations are crumbling. 
What do we say? They shoot at me. They hate the upright. They hate the godly man. They hate the godly woman. Now, let, let, me, let me connect a couple of dots for you. You and I love the truth. Our standard is the Bible, right? And our Lord is Jesus Christ. Our hope is in God alone. Our power is the spirit of Almighty God. And our allegiance is to Christ and his gospel. Our home is heaven. Our mission is to glorify God and win the lost. So you know what we do? We expose error and we proclaim truth. If we're going to expose error and if we're going to proclaim truth, guess what? They're going to hate us. They do hate us. But a civilization where everything falls apart, where the foundations are destroyed, according to verse 3, we, we know this, it impacts everything, doesn't it? It impacts education. It imp- impacts politics, economics, relationships, family, marriage, legislation, military, media, entertainment, universities, scientists, health professionals, religions that drift from Scripture. I mean, all those things we're seeing. We're seeing all of that. The foundations of our civilization are being destroyed. And you know what you and I do? We speak the truth. We are, verse 2, the upright in heart. We don't want to be crooked. We don't want to be deceitful. We don't want to be liars. We want to be upright in heart. And because we love the truth... They hate us. And because we won't be quiet, and because we won't tolerate it, we won't condone their sin, but we will expose their sin. I'm still waiting for a call to the White House to preach before our president. I haven't gotten that call yet. But if I do, I will preach Psalm 2. And I will preach that as clearly as I can. But we're not going to be quiet. We're not going to tolerate sin. We don't condone sin. We expose it. We call sinners to repent. We stand for Christ. We stand for truth. And because of that, hear this again, the wicked cannot stand the upright. They can't. One of my favorite little books in the Old Testament is the book of Amos. Amos chapter 5. Amos the prophet says, they hate, they hate the one who reproves in the gate. What do the godless, what do the wicked, what do the sinners do? They hate the one who stands for truth and he upholds what is right. It's like the wicked can't stand it. And that's exactly what we have in our psalm. When the very foundations of civilization are destroyed, what do the righteous do? We run to God for refuge. Number two, we acknowledge they shoot at me. They're going to shoot. They hate us. They're going to lurk. They're going to hate. They're going to plan. They're going to plot. They're going to come after us. It's like recently when somebody said to me, what do we do when you're arrested? I said, you keep serving the Lord. Keep serving the Lord. They plot, they hate, they 
can't stand the upright in heart. William Gurnall said, Sinning times are the saints' praying times. Let's not forget that. Well, not only do we run for refuge to God, number one, number two, we have to acknowledge when the foundations of civilization are destroyed, we have to acknowledge that they're shooting at us. Number three, we have to hear, now this is sobering. <coughs> and if we're honest with the text, this is scary. Yes. Number three, God rains fire on them. If verses 1 to 3 is the psalmist David looking around, look at what's going on. Now in verses 4 and following, David looks up. He looks up. Everything may crumble and fall except God. Civilization may be destroyed, but Christ is undefeatable. Undefeatable, unconquerable. What? Does God do to the wicked? Verse 4 The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. And he loves righteousness. What we need to remember is the character of our God. You, you get the headlines. You see what goes on. From the political realm, to the educational realm, to family, to economics, to global issues, whatever it could be, we have to, when we're looking around, we have to pause and say, wait a minute, let's look up. Verse 4, number 1, God is sovereign. He is sovereign. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. God is the holy king. When you talk about the word holy, there are three different ways that we ought to think about the holiness of God. He is in his holy temple. And his throne is in heaven. Number one, I think the common term in the Old Testament for holiness is it's a majestic holiness. God is so far removed from us. His throne is in heaven. He's exalted over all. He is majestic and splendid and glorious. But not only is he majestic holiness, number two, there's a moral holiness. He's untouched by sin. You and I are tainted by sin, but not God. He's holy, set apart from sin. But there's also third, a third kind of holiness. And it is a joyful holiness. God is infinitely happy and joyful in himself. Everything about God is good. Everything about God is the best. Everything about God is worthy of joy. So he has a majestic holiness, a moral holiness, and a joyful holiness. And David acknowledges our God, Yahweh, the Lord, is in his holy temple. What's that? The Lord's throne is in heaven. 
He's sovereign. There's a lot of political leaders, a lot of globalists, a lot of climate activists, and on and on we could go, who are sons of men of this earth. Our God reigns in the heavens. So he's sovereign, but number two, now in verse Five, verse 4 and 5, God is the judge. And we read in verse 4 that God's eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. Verse 5, he tests the righteous and the wicked. I mean, God is the ultimate x-ray heart examiner. Uh, he, he is high in the heavens, but he sees the hearts of men. There's not a heart of men and women, boys and girls that are hidden from God. He sees everything. He knows everything. And God has the ultimate x-ray eye to see through the flesh, through the outer facade, facade, and to look into our hearts. He is the refiner, the judge the one who tests men. He is the sovereign one. He is the judge. But David acknowledges when the foundations of a civilization are crumbling, you know what we have to remember? Our God is the executioner. Why? End of verse five. The one who loves violence, the soul of God, the very being of God, The very fullness of God is actively against, in a holy hatred, that person. The one who loves violence, the soul of God hates. God is forcefully, passionately, infinitely hating the man who loves violence. Now, that's a sobering thing when you consider where we live. I mean, God hates the taking advantage of the weak. God hates the rejection, neglect, the killing of senior citizens, euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide, on and on. God hates all pornography, all sexual human trafficking of children. God hates the murder of the unborn children in the womb. God hates the taking advantage of vulnerable children in our schools. God hates the violence that is visually promoted in movies. God hates the violence presented in video games. God hates the entertainment industry that promotes fighting and hurting and brawling with others. I saw even online today, there, there, are, there are Twitter users that, that do nothing but take videos of fights and put those online. God hates that. God hates the music and the media and the social platforms that graphically display all manners of violence. The one who loves violence. I mean, the text says it in verse 5. God's soul hates it. 
And then verse 6, what does God do? Upon the wicked, God will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. You know what David's doing? He's intentionally using word-for-word language from Genesis chapter 19. And when we read in Genesis chapter 19, verse 24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew the cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. I mean, there's nothing in Sodom and Gomorrah anymore. I mean, God actively destroyed it. And the picture is God is the one who rains snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind are the portion of their cup. I mean, a drop of hell must be terrible. But the full portion of the cup must be unfathomable. Fire? And you ask, well, what's brimstone? Sulfur. Speaking of pain, agony, judgment, wrath, punishment, to be always dying but never dead. Burning wind? What do you mean in verse 6, burning wind? It's a, it's a fascinating Hebrew picture. It's a, it's a picture because in Israel, there could be beautiful vegetation that would change overnight with a hot hurricane-like wind from the desert that would wither plants. And that's the picture of the wicked. They could be like a beautiful flower of the field, so it appears today, but blazingly gone tomorrow. Fire, brimstone, a hurricane-like wind of God's hot wrath. I mean, divine wrath fully poured, infinitely meted out, fairly dispensed. Mm -hmm. Fully, totally, everlastingly, unceasingly upon every wicked person. How could God do this? Because of verse 7. For the Lord is... (coughs) righteous. He's righteous. What does that mean? God is the standard of what is right. He loves what is right. He is the ultimate good and true standard of what's right, and he must uphold what is true and right. What's the point of this? When the civilization's The foundations of our society and civilization are being destroyed. God, God will take action. God will rain fire on them. It's like Joseph Aileen who said, there is no other remedy. You must either turn or burn. Spurgeon has a great sermon on that, turn or burn. But you know what that reminds us of? When we think about the fiery judgment here, and the, and the divinely burning hurricane of wind that destroys, and the punishment, and the separation, and the divine fury, get this, that's what the ungodly will receive, that's what Jesus took on the cross. 
That's what the father did to the son. What we read here in verses 5 and 6, that the ungodly will receive, that's what God the Father did to the Son because of our sin. It was unleashed upon Jesus, the Lamb, in our stead. It's how you're forgiven. It's how God can be righteous and look at you. And count you righteous because your sin has been paid for and the merit of another is given to you. What an amazing, sobering picture. Yes, of the wicked that ought to drive us to prayer and to evangelism. But it ought to give us a thankful heart. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you did for me in my place on the cross. And then David ends the psalm. Psalm 11, verse 7. When the foundations of civilization are shaken, you know what we have to remember? Here's the fourth axiom. I will behold God's face. Verse 7. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. Here it is in your Bible. Don't think Old Testament theologians didn't have a theology of eternity. Oh, they sure did. I mean, David had a great theology of eternity. The upright will behold the face of God. From the Middle Ages, theologians have called this the beatific vision. Beatific, what does that mean? It's a Latin word. It's a sight that makes happy. Ponder, ponder. The infinite God will never, ever, ever be done showing you the immeasurable riches of his grace, the full vista of himself coming to you in love in heaven. He'll never, ever exhaust it. Notice the upright. The upright will behold the face of the invisible God, And don't miss that word, will. It's a promise. Psalm 17 ends in verse 15. I love this as well. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John tells us in verse 2, we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. One of the most astonishing verses in all the Bible, Revelation 22, 4, they, that is the bondservants, will see the face of God. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And that's all we can do is imagine that you will see the triune God individually, personally. Oh, you'll see the glory of Christ fully. Yes, you will. And you'll see the brilliance and the splendor of God truly with your eyes. 
but you'll see the invisible God personally. Moses said, no no man can see God and live until you get to glory. You'll see God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. To behold the face of God, I mean, speaks of deliverance and communion and presence with God, enjoyment of God, protection that we have in God. Can you imagine the infinite wonder of gazing upon the face of God? Can you ponder the sight that when you close your eyes here, you open your eyes immediately to see your Savior? Jonathan Edwards said, he wrote a lot on the beatific vision, by the way. Jonathan Edwards said, cannot our hearts be moved when we think of all the saints in heaven beholding the face of their father and beholding the glory of their redeemer and you're contemplating the wonderful works of God, particularly the laying down of his life for you. Does that not move your heart and gladden your heart and excite your heart? That's what David said. The upright will behold the face of God. We see dimly right now. We gaze upon God by faith. But one day that faith will be turned into sight. We will not gaze upon God dimly. We will not gaze upon God distractedly. It will be a true, a transparent, a transforming, a transcendent sight of the invisible God forever and ever and ever. So we gaze upon him now by faith. One day we will behold our great God face to face. So when the foundations of our civilization are destroyed, what do we do? We have to go back to truth. Go back to God. Remember that they do hate the upright in heart. There's nothing new with that. But we know that God will handle them. But we also remember that one day we will behold our God. May that give you and I great hope as we live in these troubling times. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. The God-breathed, the relevant, the needed, the true.